and happy Chinese New Year. We are still in the middle of the Chinese New Year. Will you pray with me before we start? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, your mercies, your blessings. We thank you that you have given us much more than we can ever dare dream or hope for. Above and beyond, we give you thanks for your Son, Jesus, our Redeemer. This morning, Lord, as we come before you to listen to you, we ask that, Lord, your Spirit will dwell in our hearts and to grant us a heart that is teachable. Help us, Lord, to be open to your Spirit's teaching. We ask that, Lord, you will help us to worship you, listen to you, and apply your words to our lives to the end that, Lord, we may live lives that will become a blessing for those around and therefore lift up your name because your name is above every name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I no longer have my laptop with me, so I'm depending on this. In the course of the past few months, people have come um, and asked me, you retired already? I said, yes, 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 I retired already. So it's official since last year. So I got to use my, my wife's old laptop and convert it and put it in here. I hope I can read the words. Okay. You know, as I was sitting here, listening and going through the scripture that was read for us, and if you look at uh, the outline of Exodus chapter 2, which I've broken it up into several segments, uh, Moses in the water, Moses in hot water, Moses the waterer, the theme of water, um, and then the cries of the people. You know what I realized? That except for verses 11 to 15 and the last two verses, all the other verses that Moses was in the water and Moses was the waterer involves women, either directly or indirectly. I'll come to that point in a little while. The background that precedes chapter 2, which was shared with us last week by Pastor Gowrie, was that Pharaoh pronounced an edict, a rule, in chapter 1, verse 22, that henceforth every Hebrew child who is a male would be killed, literally to be thrown into the Nile. This was preceded by two other very shrewd dealings that Pharaoh had in the light of the threat that was in the people of Israel, the Hebrews. And those two um, commands were directed at the taskmasters or the slave drivers 
and their midwives. And we know how the story went. It was not successful. So this final edict is a more direct edict, a command to cast every newborn child who is a male into the river. And he wanted to do this because, as I said, the Hebrews were so numerous that they had become a security threat. In verses 10 of chapter 1, they said, they will become even more numerous if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Egypt have become so dependent on the Hebrews as their slave labor. Not only were they numerous, not only would they become a security threat if Egypt went to war, but if that happened, the Hebrews would leave and they would be a land without slaves. Can you imagine all the Indonesians and all the Bangladeshis and all the foreign workers were to leave Malaysia? What would happen? Who would clean our house? Who would clean the drains? Who would do that? So that's basically the situation. And therefore, he pronounced this edict. Moses in the water, right from birth, he is in grave peril. Verse 1 tells us that now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. I was pondering on this verse and see what is the significance. I think this angle will help us see why verse 1 was recorded for us, that a man who is from a tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. Consider the consequences of this man and this woman in making this decision after the pronouncement of the command to kill every male-born child by throwing it into the river. Consider the consequences of this marriage in the light of Pharaoh's edict. Indirectly, what most, uh, what Pharaoh is doing is trying to water down and dilute the Hebrews. Some people have got to get married. If you can't have a male child or if all male children were killed, over time, what would you have? A population with more girls. And if the girls get married and there are so few men left or none at all, you will be forced to intermarry with the Egyptians. And we know very well in the Old Testament when the people of Israel intermarry, what happens? They marry not only into the family, they marry the gods and the idols of the family, and their faith becomes compromised. I looked into this and searched the records. There's no definitive record that says if a Hebrew were to marry an Egyptian and they have a boy, boy child, would that child be thrown into the river? It doesn't say. But we know that if a Hebrew and a Hebrew got married and the child will be a Hebrew and the child will be condemned under Pharaoh's command. 
So it is in this context that we see Moses being born. They were already married. They already had two children. We'll come to that. Moses is not the firstborn. But Moses starts a life under the command of Pharaoh's order. He starts life in such turbulent waters, the waters in the mother's womb, perils of birth, even before he draws in his first breath. He is already condemned. Verse 2 continues to say that when she saw, when the mother saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, the King James Version and the Revised Standard Versions use the word goodly. The Berkeley Bible says exceptionally well-formed. North American Standard Bible says beautiful. And in Hebrews 11.23, he was no ordinary child. Now, Moses must, based on what we read here, must be almost perfect, must be a very beautiful, goodly, perfect, exceptionally well-formed child. And when the mother saw Moses, she couldn't bear to throw him into the river. And therefore, she hid him for three months. As I was struggling with this verse, the thought came, now why, why did she hide him or why did they as the parents hide him? Is it because he is goodly, he's perfectly formed, he's beautiful? Is it looks? Is that the basis of keeping him alive? What if Moses was born one eye blind and, you know, deformed here and there? Would he be cast into the Nile? Is looks or features a basis for preservation of the child? I'm not going into any controversy, but in today, with all the abortions that is going around us, How the child looks. Is he, does he have ten fingers, ten toes? Is that a basis for keeping the child alive? Going back here, what about a special purpose? Does God not have a purpose or a plan for every child? You can't go to a parent, Christians, and say, hmm, your child has no plan, or there's no place in, your, in God's plan for your child. We believe that every one of us has a purpose in God's kingdom. Whether we fulfill that purpose to its very end is another matter. But we all carry the potential for God to use us directly or indirectly. So why did they hide the child? Let me suggest this. The Hebrew word for good or fine um, is very much used in the first five books of the Old Testament. And it is used in the context to imply the sense of goodness, which is the result of either being made by God or given by God. 
He created and it was good. Remember, in the story of creation, it is the same word that is used to describe Moses when he was born. Goodly, perfect, beautiful. It suggests that they hit him or the mother hit him because the realization that Moses was created by God and he was good in God's sight. The parents feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, who wished to kill every male-born child. So in this context, even as the command of Pharaoh has been carried out or is being carried out in the land of Egypt, where the Hebrews were enslaved, God has begun His plan to bring a deliverer for His people. So in the midst of all this turmoil and hardships and heartbreaks of parents having to cast their male-born child into the river, God has started His work in the birth of Moses. Verse 3 goes on to say, But when she could hide him no longer, three months, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch and placed the child in it and put it among the reeds among, along the bank of the Nile. So, in a matter of speaking, Moses was thrown into the river, but in a basket in a waterproof basket. So she, in a way, obeyed Pharaoh's command. Not fully, but literally. And it goes on to say that, I'll, I'll come to that in the next slide, but hiding a child for three months, if you look at Hebrews and other parts of Scripture, I'm convinced that this is actually um, the more faithful acts of the parents than putting him in the river. I know that in your bulletin, the, the picture I, I selected was that of uh, Pharaoh's daughter holding a child, and on, her, on the left, presumably, is Moses' sister. But it depicts the picture that for the parents, or at least for the mother, to put the child in a basket, it is an act of great faith that you surrender the child into the waters. But if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, as I read this, it seems to suggest otherwise that the hiding of Moses as a baby for three months is where the faith really lies. Because in chapter 23, verse uh, uh, Verse 23 of chapter 11 in Hebrews, it reads, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. It didn't say, By faith, Moses' parents placed him into the river. No. It is hiding for three months. The mothers here would know, How can you hide a child from your neighbor for three months or your relatives? Not even for three days but three months. Until the child is three months old, she could not hide him anymore and then did what most, um, Pharaoh wanted to do, but put him in a basket. This is conjecture on my part, 
in my heart I was thinking, had the parents not thrown Moses into the river, what if? Would God have worked out His plan of salvation and deliverance through Moses? I firmly believe, yes, God would have found a way. So the faith is in the hiding of Moses for three months. Then they wavered and put him into the water. But despite all this, God's providence, God is able to use us even sometimes when we lack faith. When we are faithless, God remains faithful. Now, his sister, as I was saying, many of these verses contain the women folk. So the sister, Miriam, who is about 12, 13, 14 years old at this time, based on uh, what I can gather, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So here you have the mother and the basket and Moses in the basket, lowering him into the waters of the Nile by the reeds, and Moses' sister, Miriam, standing off in the distance to observe what had happened. Now, up to this point, the focus was on Moses' parents and their role, particularly the mother's role, not only in keeping him alive, by that, by hiding him. Now, the focus is on Miriam, and she has a very pivotal role in the whole story of Moses. She's the eldest, Miriam is the firstborn, second is Aaron, and then only Moses. So she took on this next crucial role. Now, we don't know whether the mother assigned her to stand away and observe and follow where the basket flows to, or she took it upon herself. We don't know. All it tells us is that she was there, and she was observing from a distance. Many of us observe things from a distance in the life of a church. Some gets involved with our hands. Some will observe from a distance. Now, I would like to say that we should not belittle the observers from a distance because there is a role to play. There is a part for observers to play. But at some point in time, in God's will, there may come a time when that observer needs to step up and be actively and pivotally involved in the whole plan of God as it unfolds itself, which we shall see what Miriam did. Now, remember, Miriam is a, a young girl, maybe just into adolescence, 12, 13, maybe at oldest 15 years old. Think of someone you know, a child of that age, and what she did. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank, chasing away the crocodiles, maybe. And she saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her slave girl. Now, I was reading some of the commentaries. There's a difference in the role between the attendants, which presumably are all ladies, she's bathing, all right, and the slave girl. The slave girl is like the personal assistant. If, you want, if Pharaoh's daughter wants something urgently done, she won't go to the attendants. She will go to the slave girl. So this just tells us the urgency and the priority 
of Pharaoh's daughter when she saw the basket. She called her slave girl to go fetch. So the preservation of Moses' life now lay in the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. It was passed on by the mother into the river, and now it comes to Pharaoh's daughter. Activate your imagination a bit. Try to see the picture in, in your eyes. What's happening as all this unfolds? Verse 6, she opened it and saw the baby. So presumably, to open something, it has first to be closed. So the basket is not an open basket, but it has a lid or a cover. So she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. We don't know how long the basket was floating along the river, but he was crying, whatever reason. And she felt sorry for him. The emotional contact of Pharaoh's daughter and Moses, possibly because God's blessing on Moses so that he was born to be perfectly formed, beautiful, goodly. Now, in the Old Testament times, when someone is endowed with physical beauty, it is as if it is a sign of that person having God's favor or God's blessings. And in this instance, a three-month-old child crying pulled at the heartstrings of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, we, we see the micro-activities that are happening, but I think behind the bigger picture is God. God is the one that provides for this situation and allowed Moses' daughter to feel compassion and pity. Verse 6, second part, says, this is one of the Hebrew babies, she knows. She possibly have seen evidence of her father's command put into action. She could be down by the river to bathe, on a daily basis, and my imagination tells me that on some occasions, she would see the horrible result of her father's command of dead bodies of babies floating down as she bathed. You know what I'm trying to say? And therefore, she is aware of her father's commands, and when she opened it up and says, this is one of the Hebrew babies, no Egyptian would throw their own babies into the river. It's very clear. Maybe it's also because of the, the clothing and, and maybe even the features. But she knew it's a Hebrew baby. And this becomes the pivotal point of Moses' deliverance when he is in the water. Verse 7, Then, this is the point of time when Moses' sister change from an observer far off into an active engagement. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, she must have come near in speaking distance, and asked her, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Now, think about this. 12, 13, 14-year-old girl saying this. She is knowledgeable. She's aware of what's happening. She's knowledgeable of the customs. And instead of asking, how can I help? 
she makes a proposal that could have swayed Moses, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, in her mind, she could be thinking to keep, or not to keep, keep, father say, cannot throw, you are so pitiful, so beautiful child. And then the question, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Nudging Pharaoh's daughter into a positive decision. Again, in the microcosm of it, we see interactions between this child, Miriam, 12, 13, 14 years old, and Pharaoh's daughter. But behind all this, God's hand is blessing the whole unfolding of this episode. I used a play of words here. We started off when we see Miriam, Moses' sister, is watching over. But she not only watched over, at the right time, she came over, she spoke up, she won over Moses, uh, sorry, won over Pharaoh's daughter's heart and decision. If she had not done that, to me, it's game over. So some of us being observers, at some point of time, it may be the right thing to step up, to come over, to speak up, and to get engaged. And she did that, the pivotal point. And the words we all want to hear, Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, go. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Wow. The mother who was nursing Moses for three months, thinking that she would never see him again when she placed him in the basket, now got to take care of her own baby. Of course, Pharaoh's daughter doesn't know that. So this decision, so again, some conjecture here, this decision of Pharaoh's daughter virtually makes it impossible for Pharaoh and his law providers to enforce his command. Because it has been broken by Pharaoh's own daughter. And in doing so, some commentators even went as far as to say this, that Moses' deliverance possibly resulted in the deliverance of all other Hebrew babies, male child, because it was broken by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. We don't know, but it is a possibility. That's why I put it in this color. Let's go on. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby. So when the mother came, says, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman, which is Moses' mother, took the baby and nursed him. The mother's here. If you were Moses' mother at that point, what would be in your heart? What would you be thinking? Not only did you get back your child, you get paid, and you get protection. From whom? From the Pharaoh's daughter. No longer has she to hide him. She can bring him up openly. What a truly unexpected outcome. 
beyond the wildest dreams and hopes of the parents, Amram and Yoshebet, the mother. And here I just want to read for us in Ephesians 3, 20, 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God can work wonders to deliver, to preserve his chosen to be Israel's deliverer. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So, they found him in the river, took him up. Miriam, the, the sister, came and made that suggestion, let, let me get the Hebrew women, and, and the mother came and gave it to the mother. For a period of time, the commentators suggest that when the child is weaned, how, how, how many months before a child is weaned? My grandniece just visited us over Chinese New Year, has a two, two-and-a-half-year-old girl still breastfeeding. Okay? Doesn't want to give up. And she was laughing and it says, uh, what did she put now? Lemon. And, you know, the next thing the father said, must try chili powder. <laughs> and then he said, that will hurt you more than hurt the child. I don't <laughs> but two and a half years, still on the breast. How long? We don't know. Records don't tell us. But after a time, uh, when he grew older. Now, so from that three months to when he is weaned, nine months, ten months, a year, a year and a half, two years, there's time for um, Moses' parents, the mother, to teach him, to train him in the ways of their God. So the suggestion is that not only was he spared of his life, his very life, he's protected by the decree. Because just because um, Pharaoh's daughter said, yes, go, provided she's being paid. The parents were able to train her in God's ways, help him to know who he is as a Hebrew, and then when he is weaned as a small child, she brought Moses back to Pharaoh's daughter and gave it to her, and it became Pharaoh's daughter's son. Then Pharaoh named him Moses. So the naming was not done by the mother. The naming was done by Pharaoh's daughter. And it is her that gave the name Moses. Again, I put myself in the mother's shoes. It's like an up and down roller coaster ride. Had a child, you're happy. With a command, you get frightened. You hide the child. You can't hide him anymore. Put him in the water. All hope is gone. You get the child back. You get paid for it. You get protection. The hopes go up again. But then, there'll come a point when she has to give it back to Pharaoh's daughter. I wonder how the mother would have felt 
But the comforting thought I would share with us is that at this second parting, my hope is that, and my belief to extend is that they can take comfort. The parents of Moses can take comfort because they look back and see the provision and the hand of God in preserving Moses when he was let into the water. That they are not really surrendering him to Pharaoh's daughter's hand and care, but they're actually surrendering him into God's hands. And once we are in God's hands, there is no worry. We are in good hands. Then comes these few verses of Moses in hot water. You don't see much women mentioned here. So when you have women in the verses, these are good verses. When there's no women, <laughs> you get in trouble. Verse 11, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Notice the emphasis, his own people. In Acts chapter 7, verse 23, says that this is 40 years down the road. So he has been raised in the palace of the Pharaoh, trained in all the knowledge uh, in, in writing, in philosophy, in, in, in even in self-defense, and he's grown up. And after 40 years, what happens? In Hebrews 11, 24, 26, says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up 40 years, Refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh. He made a decision. Um, son of Pharaoh's daughter. He, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. So the New Testament verses tells us that when he had grown up, after 40 years, he decided to identify with his real people, the Hebrews. He gave up whatever he has received in the adoption by Pharaoh's daughter and chose to be mistreated. That tells us that in the 40 years, the Hebrews were continually being mistreated by Pharaoh. So this is very pivotal, but it also got him in hot water. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, so when he went out to, be, to see his own people, right, glancing this way, and that way, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian. Remember, he was trained in Pharaoh's court. He probably is a good fighter. He probably has a sword or whatever. He killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He had identified with the Hebrews before all this happened. And therefore, when he committed this killing or this murder, it's a murder, it's not killing because he looked this way and that way, tells us it's premeditated. He had already given up his status. It is not because of the killing that he lost his status, but he has already given it up. He went out, saw the mistreatment, took that action. We are not condoning murder or killing, 
but he did that. And we'll see how he got into hot water. That was the first. While killing is not condoned, never condoned, we know God is above in His sovereign. In this instant, God used that providentially to prepare him further as the ultimate deliverer of Israel. What happened? The next day, so after killing, hiding the Egyptian in the sand, he went back. And the next day, he went out again and saw two Hebrews fighting this time. And he asked the one in the wrong. So he must have observed it for, again from a distance what the quarrel was about. And he could see that one was the wrong person and one was the right person. And he went to the person who is in the wrong and rebuked him and asked him, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? We are in the same predicament. We shouldn't be fighting internally. Something like that. Now, earlier Moses sought to defend the oppressed Hebrew, and he ended up killing the Egyptian the day before, hiding the body. Here, he rebuked a fellow Hebrew brother who was in the wrong for striking another Hebrew. Both actions, if you step back, both actions were that of a deliverer. One who wants to help the oppressed. But while the motivation may be right, the manner in which he carried out his actions and the timing, his own, not God's timing, landed him in hot water. Because soon, immediately after this, what the man said, the, the, the Hebrew who was in the wrong told him, who made you ruler and judge over us? Or who died and made you king? You know, that kind of thing. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? So he was shocked. Huh? So I dug further. How did this, this Hebrew know what happened the day before? I mean, one possibility in my mind is that the day before, he walked out, he saw the Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew. He killed the Egyptian. Possibly the person who was saved, which is the Hebrew, spread the word. Yeah, you know who saved me? Moses. Possible. Right? And therefore, this second Hebrew who is being reprimanded by Moses said, who are you? Are you the ruler? Are you the judge? Then Moses, on hearing this, became afraid and thought, what I, must, what I did must have become known. Now, in those days, when it happened, there were no cell phones. And today, anything happened, three seconds later, is on social media, right? Now, in those days, there's no photographs, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever, tweets. But word was spread, and he grew afraid. Now, interesting, the Hebrew who was reprimanded by Moses, what he said, who made you ruler and judge over us, is actually a prediction. Because 40 years after this, Moses became their ruler and their judge. The rejection of Moses' actions, just a point, typified Israel's hardness of heart and rebellion against God. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh 
and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. So he grew afraid. His life is now at stake. He escaped once. I don't think he can escape a second time. So he thought, so he ran away. He went out of Egypt into the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So if you look back, and I suppose sitting there in, in a foreign land, he looked back, he started well, right? He was safe, he was preserved, he was given into uh, a life of luxury in the courts of Pharaoh, but he didn't end well. Now his very life is in peril. It ended in a whimper. He wanted to be a deliverer. Instead, he had to run for his life. He depended on his sword, I would suggest, his own might, the palace court training as a prince of Egypt when he acted out the way he did to help the oppressed. The bitter lessons that he will need to learn in the next 40 years of humility, of patience, and dependence on God will be very much needed and it will take time for him to really ripen up and be ready to be called by God 40 years later. Now, a priest on Median had seven daughters. See? A lot of ladies. And they came down to draw water and fill the throughs of water and uh, to water their father's flock. They came early and waited at the well, uh, for it to be open. If you read Genesis 29, 2 and 3, you will realize that I didn't know this and I read this, that the well in those days have a stone lid cover. And it's only um, in the morning when the men folk come, were they strong enough to roll the cover out so that they can start drawing water. So that's why they came early and waited for the well to be open. Verse 17 says, Some shepherds came along, drove them away, but Moses got up and, became, and came to their rescue and watered their flock. So imagine, these seven sisters came with their flock, hoping to be able to draw water. But when the shepherds came, they bullied the girls, chased them. You were here first, but you, because you were ladies, you don't count. The, the, the male shepherds, jump queue, lah. Huh? jump queue. You hate people who jump queue, right? No. So they are always bullied. And then, who was sitting by the well? Moses was sitting by the well. So he was looking and he was observing. You see, in Moses' heart, God has planted this seed of being a deliverer. He cannot tahan looking at people being oppressed. And so he acted. The Bible doesn't tell us what he did. He don't know whether he has a sword or whatever. But what it tells us is that um, Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Okay? So, Moses, ever the deliverer, this time intervened. But he didn't intervene for his own people. The first two occasions, when he sees his own people, the Hebrews being oppressed, he took action. This time, it is seven girls. They are not Hebrews, but he intervened. Okay? When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, why, why you come back so early? 
There's a story behind why did they, why did the father say, why you come back so early? Um, I, I know of a colleague who retired a few months before me, and I met him later, and he told me, you know, uh, Giam, he told, called me Giam, after I retired, I went out for breakfast and came back home. Uh, my son asked me, Daddy, why you come back so early? <laughs> Something must have happened. Because Daddy don't come back by 6 p- usually by 6 p.m. At least by 11, 12, you come back already. Daddy, why you come back so early? And the father asked the daughters, why you come back so early? There's a, history, there's a, there's a story behind this. The, the oppressed, the lot or the, the predicament of the oppressed and the seven wim, uh, women or the sisters were oppressed. They had to go up early. They, they get ready to be bullied. They had to beg, to plead, to cajole their way, ask for favours so that they can get some water. But usually, they'll be the last. The male shepherds will bully them, draw all the water, and they'll be the last. And therefore, by the time they drew the water and maybe the well water has gone down, I don't know. When they finish watering their flock, by the time they come back, it will be late. Go early, come back late. 19. And the girls answered their father. An Egyptian. Now, they couldn't, they don't know who Moses was. Probably he was dressed like an Egyptian. So an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flocks. So Moses, when he helped and intervened, he went through all the way. He did a complete job. He didn't just chase away the shepherds and you draw yourself la water. I do you favor enough already, ma. Why you want me some more? You know that kind of thing. If if he's Hokkien, he will talk like that. But he not only chased away. <laughs> the other shepherds, he drew the water and he watered their flocks. Not halfway. And may I suggest in the application, when we do something, don't do halfway. See it to the end. Okay? To completion. Because there is a reward. And where is he? The father asked. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Real and his family extended hospitality to Moses, the Egyptian, for his help and provided for his need. Now, his needs are plenty. He has nowhere to stay, nothing to eat, no job, nothing. They provided for him. It tells us in verse 21, 22 that Moses agreed to stay with the man, meaning that the man offered Moses, why don't you stay with us? And he agreed. Who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Now, all the young men here, next time you see seven ladies want to do something, help, you may get a wife. <laughs> For watering sheep, you get a wife. Ruel gave Zipporah to Moses. Now, I'm not saying just because of that. He must have earned the favor of the potential father in law. And maybe seven girls, you know, very hard to find good, all the good men have been taken, you know, that kind of thing. And Moses is available. And Zipporah. Zipporah actually means little bird in the language. So, married, and Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. Now, naming children is very important. We think long and hard over it because the names are very important. The fact that he named the child Gershom 
is because he sees himself an exile. He continues to see himself out of God's plan. He no longer sees himself as the deliverer. He's gone down. But he doesn't know God is not yet finished with him. Sometimes we may be down, but we are not out. Have faith in God. Preparation for the deliverer, part two. Now, in the absence of his real and adopted family, God provides him, right, to be Israel's future deliverer, sheltering him, training him in hardship and poverty. You know, he became a shepherd. You know, you get room and board and daughter, you must do something. So he became a shepherd, as we shall see in, in chapter 3, that he might know what it means to be in want, to be in lack, and to abound. He learned that when he was in the palace. Teaching, God teaching to be contemplative, to be meditative, to be alone. When you are a shepherd, you are very lonely. Hours and days in the, in the wilderness only with sheep. Devotion which can only come through a life of solitude. Right? Also to teach him to be humble, not to depend on his might, his strength, his education, his princehood that he gave up. Instead of the sword, to depend on the staff. Instead of a prince, to be a shepherd. Instead of himself, to depend on God. And these lessons took another 40 years. You can't see this, but I look back at this and I drew a graph. There's a little blue line right in the middle, just above the middle. It starts with, I can't even see it. He's born, he's below the line because he was born under the curse or under the command of Pharaoh. If you're a male child, of course he doesn't know, right? You shall be put to death, cast into the Nile. Hit for three months in peril. Cast into the Nile, it was dipped down. And then things began to pick up, it hooks up. Um, picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, nursed by the mother, protection by the, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, got paid some more, yeah? So then he went into the palace to live, where he was trained, educated in the courts, and lived in the palace like a prince. So he went up. After 40 years, what happened? In Acts, in Hebrews, it recorded for us that he renounced his royalty and chose to be identified. And then he killed the Egyptian in the quarrel, and then he had to run away. He helped the girls, married Zipporah, had a son. So you can see, in, out of the water, in hot water, and the waterer. If you add all this, it's 80 years. I'm waiting for next week, if it is Exodus chapter 3, when God calls him. It took another 40 years for him to learn all that. Last two verses. During that long period, the cries of the people, right? The king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Sometimes God suffers the rod of the wicked to uh, very long, and sometimes God suffers the rod of the wicked to lie very long and very heavily on the lot of the righteous. I quoted this from Matthew Henry. 
Meaning that sometimes God suffers, God allows His people right, to be mistreated and suffer for seemingly long periods of time. General election is coming. And for those of us who have been praying for the past one, two general elections for a change in the atmosphere, in the environment, it is a long time. But who knows? God's timing is not our timing. God allows. He may wait for the sin to ripen before He takes action. This is what happens. 40 years. How many general elections in 40 years? <laughs> now, in spite of the appearances on the contrary, we need to see beyond the physical and to see with the heart of faith. God is still at work. God is still at work with Moses, even in the wilderness, in the shepherd, out of his land. God is informed. He's involved. He is intent to fulfill his promise. He's all-knowing. He's sovereign. And he's faithful. Finally, God heard the groaning and remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The cut a long story short, this is where God now will intervene, goes into Israel's history. And when the time is ready, God will act. I will leave the applications to you, but I'll quickly just go through. God redeems us through us and through our families. We have read and heard the story of how Moses went through and the role of the family, the mother in hiding her, the sister in being an observer and then engaging, the slave girl, even Pharaoh's daughter. The, 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 the real also had a role. So God can work through us and through our families. The question is, how can we and our families, even our extended families, do better so that we can be willing and ready vessels for God to use in His works of redemption? How can we respond positively and be ready for God's call? In what areas can we strengthen and prepare ourselves and our families so that we can be used by God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of Moses, your providence, your protection, and your preservation of his life. And we see your preparation of his life as well, that one day you will call him from the burning bush, that he may become the deliverer of your people, Israel, that you called them out of Egypt. Father, in our lives, sometimes we see things are so drab and so low. It appears that nothing that we do is going right. But help us, Lord, to see beyond physical eyes to the eyes of faith that you are faithful and you are working. We pray for ourselves and our families that you will help us, that we can be ready for you, that we can be useful vessels individually or as a family, to extend help, assistance, hospitality, prayers, and support for your servants around us. Help us to be watchful, observant, 
But if the time comes for, that you want us to come into engagement, then grant us courage, just as you did for Miriam, a 12-, 13-year-old girl, so that we can become your vessels. And through us, through the families that you have instituted, your works of redemption can continue in this land. For we ask this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.